Well, turn your Bible this morning to the Gospel of Luke. The Gospel of Luke. We'll be in chapter 4. Chapter 4, picking up in verse 31. Last week we saw that Jesus was rejected by his own. And this week we see that that gospel that he preached last week that was rejected by those of Nazareth is now being proclaimed to the world. We see all that he had preached as it relates to bringing freedom to the captive, healing the sick, preaching the word. All of that starts to take place as this passage concludes in chapter 4. He basically does what he says he's going to do. He preaches to the, those in Nazareth. They reject him. And now he goes to the countryside and does all that he has said. You see, Jesus was on defense in the wilderness. And now he is on the offense. He seeks to take all of Capernaum, all of the Galilean region, all of Israel, and all of the world to himself. But it starts here. Jesus is on the offensive. On that offensive nature, stand in reverence and awe as we hear the word of God in Luke chapter 4, picking up with verse 31. 31. And he went down to Capernaum, the city of Galilee, and he was teaching them on the Sabbath, and they were astonished at his teaching, for his word possessed authority. And in the synagogue, there was a man who had a spirit of an unclean demon. And he cried out with a loud voice, Ha! What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. And Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And when the demon had thrown him down in their midst, he came out of them, having done them no harm. And they were all amazed and said to one another, what is the word? What is this word? For with authority and power, he commands the unclean spirits. And they come out. And there reports about him went into every place in the surrounding region. And he arose and left the synagogue and entered Simon's house. Now Simon's mother-in-law was ill with high fever. And they appealed to him upon her behalf. And he stood over her and rebuked the fever, and it left her. And immediately she rose and began to serve them. Now, when the sun was setting, all of those who had any who were sick with various diseases brought them to him. And he laid his hands on every one of them and healed them. The demons also came out of many, crying, You are the Son of God! And he rebuked them, and would not allow them to speak, because they knew that he was the Christ. And when it was a day, he departed and went into a desolate place, and the people saw him and came to him, and would have kept him from leaving him. But he said to them, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God, to the other towns as well, for I was sent for this purpose. And he was preaching in the synagogues of Judea. Here is our gospel lesson. This is where the Lord he may be seated. Have you ever received such news that it seemed to change everything in your life? I am reminded of the life of John Newton. 
I don't know if you've ever read any biographies of a great hymn writer, but he was a truly detestable and deplorable human being. The subtitle for one of the biographies uh, for Newton was From Disgrace to Amazing Grace. And then we all know, written by John Newton. How deplorable was Newton? Well, he often was rebellious against his naval sailor father, who was a captain of a ship. He was so bad that when he himself enlisted in the, the Navy, he was such a troublemaker to the Navy that they'd rather trade him for someone off of the trade of, of a slave ship. He was just such a problem. He was so contumacious. So rebellious that no one wanted to deal with him. As he would enter the slave trade in England, he served on that ship. He would become a captain of that ship. And there are all sorts of stories of him as he would abuse his slaves verbally, physically, and in other ways, assaulting them. He was a deplorable human being. As deplorable as a man could be. He was betrayed. We don't get this side of Newton often. But when you start singing Amazing Grace, the next time you sing it, a wretch such as this, you will understand what he means. He was wretched. There's an event in Newton's life aboard one of those slave vessels as he was hauling his cargo back to England. A storm, a fierce storm, started to batter the ship. It was such a fierce and true, destructive storm that he thought at any moment the hull would give way, destroying the ship, all that was on it, himself included. He had nothing he could do in that moment but pray God. And in that prayer, he said, Oh Lord, if you spare me here today, I will give you my life. And that is what the Lord said. He attributed to him being saved by that storm by an almighty act of God. God's word and work pouring through him at that moment, recalling his Puritan mother's own language as she nurtured him when he was a young boy. That rebellious, slave, captaining, vile man would come to faith in that moment. You'd go back and you'd actually be one who would help Wilberforce to end the slave trade in England itself. From disgrace to amazing grace. The ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ changes everything. As it changed Newton, it changes you here today as well. We've already seen in the first few chapters of Luke the great calling that the Lord would have as he comes into his own. As he seeks to do ministry, we have already heard the promises. And now, as we end chapter 4, we see the fulfillment of those promises start to take hold. That the work of Jesus himself will transform society itself. It will cast out demons who have long control over Israel, but throughout all the world. And it will give restoration and peace. We see the power and authority of Christ start to take place here. But what I want you to see in this passage, it is reiterated over and over and over again, is that it is by the power of his word that he has authority. He doesn't do any hocus pocus or any weird rituals in order to cast out demons. He doesn't do any weird and odd rituals here to heal the sick. It's by his word that he casts out. It's by his word that he heals. It is by his word. The word of Christ is central to this passage. 
And in the centrality of it, we see this true authority. Americans tend to struggle with authority. How many institutions do you have skepticism towards or cynicism at? We just pray for our Congress that you may have said in your own mind's eye, what's the point? They are such a lost institution. We tend to have Americans distrust institutions. We distrust our government. We distrust our president. We distrust the CDC. We may distrust big business or the universities that we once called our own. We are a people that are skeptical towards institutions. I could keep naming them. You find one that you would name for yourself. We are a skeptical and perhaps at times cynical people. But woe to he who casts that same cynicism and skepticism on Christ's authority. May we see the redemption of institutions in the work of Christ. And we see that by his word that comes with authority. And so today, today, if you're skeptical of anything, do not bring your skepticism to the church. The Lord Jesus Christ presents us today his true power and authority, and that comes in his word. Jesus' word comes with cosmic authority. We see that throughout this passage. But I want to hone in on three ways we see his power and authority manifest. The first way is that we see his word is preached to us. How does the Lord show his cosmic authority to us? It is preached through us. Verse 31, and he went down to Capernaum, the city of Galilee, and he was teaching them on the Sabbath, but they were astonished at his teaching. For his word possessed what? Authority. Jesus has upgraded from the last time he preached in Nazareth from a town half the size of Hamilton to about the size of Hamilton. It's not a large place. There was no public libraries or town halls. There was no infrastructure that would show anyone of value actually lived there. It was another small town. But his preaching ministry was starting to take off so well that the people of Capernaum say that they were filled with amazement. They were astonished by the preaching of God's word to them by Christ. The authority of Christ as he preaches the word to the people. To be astonished is to be filled with amazement to the point of being overwhelmed. When we first walked into our house here in Collinsville, I was astonished. I was astonished. I was amazed at all the decisions our previous owners had made in that home. From reclaiming 100-year-old barnwood as new infrastructure to perhaps the flowery carpets in our bedroom to the eternal wallpaper on our walls to the junctions that would send any electrician in utter also astonishment. It was an astonishing house. It is an astonishing house. I was so amazed that I was overwhelmed by the home. Still I am today in some regards. I was astonished. These people were not astonished like I was in the negative sense, perhaps. They were astonished positively. They had never heard a preacher with such authority. Jesus is coming as a true Spurgeon of his day, bringing out the true authority that he has from the Father himself as he preached the word. He preaches with confidence 
not because he has a false confidence, but because he has true cosmic authority. He's the only one that perhaps could speak with confidence. Because he knows the role of the Father all too well. What is the purpose of this preaching that he has that overwhelms? Well, verse 43 says it. I must preach the good news to the kingdom of God to all the other towns where I was sent for this purpose. As the Nazarites rejected the Lord Jesus Christ last week, those in Capernaum want to keep him for themselves. They hear the gospel so well that they say, don't go out, stay with us. They're like the disciples who misunderstand perhaps the scope of Jesus' ministry. They said, you are come to save us. Yes, stay with us. Continue to heal us. Cast out all our demons. Transform our little town into a great society. Jesus says, I will set for a greater purpose than saving Capernaum. And I will come to save all the countryside and all the world as well. It's a great mission. He comes with an authoritative word, and that word, the good news of Christ, is that he will save not merely Capernaum, but that he will save all who hear the gospel. He must go. We hear the authoritative and powerful good news within this passage. It shows us perhaps the centrality of the preaching of the word. It is central to the Christian faith. Perhaps I know Jesus Christ, and that is true, and I'll say a hearty amen to that. But the preaching of Christ must go. And it goes on for those who he calls as ministers in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. Preaching, perhaps, in our own day has fallen on hard times. I was watching with great curiosity and puzzlement throughout the summer as many mega churches were doing uh, a night at the movies within their churches. And I was recalling some churches that dressed up their sanctuaries like Star Wars themed spaceships. Others having the pastors dressed up as Woody from Toy Story. It's just so amazing. Preaching has fallen on hard times. Praise the Lord, I've not lowered myself to such standards, I guess. You won't get me in a way costume. Sorry. Preaching, though, is a great input to the church. We must not water it down. We must understand the centrality of preaching to the ministry of Christ. Christ sees it as the first thing that he does, basically, after he leaves Satan in the wilderness. He goes out and begins preaching. You need to understand the vital nature of preaching in your own sanctifying life. You need the word preached to you. Yes, you need to do your quiet time and read and so on and so forth, but you need to sit under the preaching of the word. It was so vital in the Reformation era that there was preaching routinely every day in Geneva. John Calvin preached 25 times a month in Geneva. I hear pastors sometimes preach that they preach 30 times a year. 25 times a month. I'm not advocating for taking a 10x workload. Don't be worried. But that's how central preaching was in the Reformation. What reformed the world during the Reformation was the preaching of the word. As the people gathered, not merely on a Sunday morning, but Sunday evening and most days throughout the week. If they weren't doing anything, if they weren't caught up, they were called to the parish. And they worshipped God. That's how central preaching is. We must value it and value it well. 
But you may say, Scott, I, I struggled to remember sermons. I can't remember what he preached last week. We must also understand the imperceptible nature of the work of God through preaching. It's a day-by-day thing, much like going to the gym. I'm sure you're discouraged when you try to get back in shape. The first week, you see no difference. It's imperceptible. And month and week go by, and it just seems so imperceptible, but as time goes by, you're a stronger human being. It's the same with preaching. Those who sit under the word regularly, they grow, they feel perceptible. But you truly grow. Truly grow. You must understand this great ordinary In the reformed world, a good dog will something know you're at a good church. Is that they reference the ordinary means of grace and nauseum. And those ordinary means, all we're basically saying is these are the way, this is the way that you typically grow with us. How do you grow? You grow through prayer as we pray together on many occasions this Sunday morning. You grow through the sacraments. And you grow through the reading and preaching of the Lord. You do this not on your pastor's own soapboxes, even though I seem to be on a soapbox now. You do so as the Lord gives you His word through His ministry. Well, as a minister here, has Scott had good or bad sermons? Maybe most friends are mediocre. They may be, but the word goes forth despite command. I want you to see, in other words, the power of the ministry of the Lord. The ministry of the word is central to your life. When you begin to miss Sundays more and more frequently, getting out of the habits of receiving the word, it does hurt you and it hurts you greatly. You grow by it. You get anything from today is that you grow through the preaching of the word. No gimmicks can overcome. No TED Talks can overlook you. You need preaching. That is what we did and all from here this morning. But also we learn that Jesus' preaching gives us purpose. Not only that we grow in the Lord Jesus Christ, but we see the purpose. What is the purpose of preaching? It is that all those might hear the good news. We see that as we read just verse 43, but we see that through that section from 42 to 44. Why did Jesus preach? It is for the people to hear. It gives them purpose as they realize their they might too glorify and enjoy God. Jesus' word comes with cosmic. We see that it comes through his preached word, but also we see that his word conquers all wickedness. That's the second point. Not only does his word preach to us, but it also conquers wickedness. Look down perhaps at verse 33 with me. And in the synagogue, there was a man who had a spirit of an unclean demon, and he cried out with a loud voice. You see, Luke, as he is writing, he doesn't know who he's writing to. Demons in the ancient Israelite context were bad. And they, they understood. You did not want to deal with demons or false gods. They were bad and bad for your health and bad for your life. But in Roman culture, demons were somewhat neutral. There were some good ones. There were some bad ones. What was this kind of demon? And so Luke seeks to clarify the type of demon. Though all demons are certainly unclean, he wants the reader to know this is not a good guy. The person that Jesus is talking to isn't a good one. 
nor any of them are. He's unclean. In other words, he is rebellious against God. He wants nothing to do with God. He wants to obey God in his control. This is not a good guy. A demon, when he sees Christ, as demons often do, he says, ah! You see the shrieking, ah! Hey! Stop! What do you want to do with us? The demon says. This is enough. We don't want any more. You come to destroy us. We shot. The demon is as shocked as the Capernaum people as they receive the, the preaching of the word. He is shocked. He's astonished. He wants nothing to do with Christ. That cop view that word as being a questionable hey. Reminded one day in the South on a Wednesday evening, we were having a fellowship meal together. Sometimes after the kids ate, they get a little emotional. We knock them down and start to camp up. And I remember little Mark climbing on the grand piano and standing on it. And all of our, just to all of our dismay, we turn it and see him. And what do we do? We go, ah! We don't want to be too loud. Because we didn't want him to be shocked and fall off the piano. But it's that sort of shock. Oh, stop! The demon wants nothing to do with Jesus. He wants nothing of Jesus to be there. Why is that? Because he understands his he understands that when the Son of Man comes to Capernaum, this one has the power and authority to do whatever he wants with me. It is not good. He basically says, leave, please leave me alone. I'm enjoying what I have here. A good thing goes. Please go. Stop and go. Turn your back. Head the center happen. And we can go on our way. I can have the Capernaum. You can have the world. We'll be okay. Notice how Jesus responds. He rebukes him and says, be silent and come on. There's no magical trickery here. It's so simple, isn't it? Jesus doesn't go through all these, perhaps, demonic possession rituals that you may have seen in the movies. He just says, be silent again. Jesus' authority is seen here. There's no contest. The demon has found his match. He cannot be overwhelmed by this one. He is overwhelmed this man for how many years who got him. He silences him immediately. By his word, he says, be quiet. The demon silences him. He knew that he had no authority to usurp the Son of God. You see Christ's great and powerful word in the silencing of the demon. His authority in his Jesus does not call on God to drive out a demon in, 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 a, in, a, in any sort of incantation. He merely rebukes. Rebukes and talks. I want you to see that silencing the word is the authority of Christ. When Christ says, it happens. How do the people respond? Again, verse 36, they were all amazed, and they said to one another, what is this word? Again. With authority and power to command these unclean spirits in the Who knows how long this man has been possessed by this demon? And I'm sure his contemporaries knew that all too well. They were surprised. But that man who maybe had been possessed for months, years, entire lifetime, who knows, is now in his right mind. 
you see the complete authority. It reminds me perhaps of when Jesus is on the sea of Galilee and there's a massive storm taking place and it seems all chaotic. Water seems to be slushing aboard and Jesus is sleeping. And his disciples wake him up in a frantic tizzy, wondering if they are going to die today. And Jesus calms the chaos. Again, by his word, he calls chaos. And by his word, he transforms and saves us. He destroys Satan, he destroys these demons, but he also destroys all wickedness. He conquers our wickedness upon our behalf. We see, we see in this passage that the demon knows Jesus. You may wonder why he calls Jesus by his name. It's not to call his love like we know who you are. We have a direct line to your father. It's not like that. You may name drop someone to show that, hey, I know your phone number. I know your home address. You better check carefully. That's not what's going on here. Because he actually knows Jesus. And that's the warning for us here, perhaps, today. There is a real danger in knowing Jesus but not having faith in Jesus. This demon knows the truth of the Christ. He knows what he has come to do. He knows that he will transform. And there is the same danger for you and I as we hear the gospel begin and begin. We know, J.C. Ryle pointedly said, we may go on all our lives saying, I know that and I know that, and sink at last into hell with the words, those very words on our lips. Ryle was always poetic. Perhaps convicting me, so there's a reminder that knowledge of Christ is not enough. We must have faith in Christ. We must not be like the demon here, like the man redeemed after the demon. Jesus comes to conquer all our sin, and it comes by the word of his authority. And so Jesus' word comes with cosmic authority. We see that in the preached word. We see that in him conquering all wickedness by his word. And lastly, he doesn't leave us in that problem of wickedness. We see that his word then brings us restoration. That's this last point. He brings us restoration. We see this in verse 34 through, or 38 through 40. Read it with me. Or hear it with me. And he arose and left the synagogue and entered Simon's house. Now Simon's mother-in-law was ill and And they appealed to him upon her behalf. And he stood over her and rebuked the fever, and it left her. And immediately she rose and began to serve them. We see cosmic restoration. Not only does Jesus cast out demons, but he also heals. He restores. He restores Simon and his mother-in-law. Luke feels no need to explain who Simon is. He presupposes, you understand, that he's talking about Peter. And that Peter's mother-in-law has gotten sick. She has a fever. And fevers at that time were a little more precarious than they are in our time. In that, those days, fevers were not a symptom of an illness. They were an illness. Recall my time in Tuscumbia. For some reason, whether it was the house I was living in or being in the South, I had quarterly fevers, and I thought nothing of them. And I'd be here for 24 hours and go away, and I'd go on my business. It was the oddest anomaly in my life. Fortunately, it don't happen anymore, but it was just here and there, gone, who cares? But for Jesus, at this time, when he is preaching, a fever was an illness in and of itself. And in many cases, if not treated well, it would lead to death. 
those times, fevers were also viewed as divine judgment from God himself to the people. What has the mother-in-law appeared? What has she done? There's almost a sin variant to it. So the next time you have a fever, you can wonder that yourself. What have I done, oh Lord? But what does Jesus do here? He heals her. And then the most intricate detail in verse 39 is that she is so healed that she immediately rose and began to serve. That's how healed she was. That's how restored she was. She was so restored, so rejuvenated. And immediately she gets up and starts serving them. It's like she got a steroid shot for the sickness she had. And she's up with all the energy in the world, ready to serve Christ and all those who are in the home with her. We see the immediate restoration, the immediate transformation. And her response is just so natural. What do we do when Jesus saves? We then go into the service. We immediately begin to serve him. When we confess our sins to him and he gives us a great taste of that total and final restoration that we'll have in heaven. What do we do? We begin to serve. Begin to serve like this woman. When we see that Jesus did not have only authority over her sickness, look at verse 40, and when the Son was setting all of those who were sick, the various diseases were brought before him, he laid hands on them and healed all of them. This isn't a one-trick pony, a one-time show. Jesus comes and brings restoration. But we have to ask the question to ourselves, why? Why does Jesus heal these people? He heals these people not merely for them to be restored to physical good health. He heals these people to show who he is as their Savior. He shows them a glimpse of what they will have in the Lord Jesus Christ, what they will have in heaven. He gives them a taste of you may have to question on why there seems to be not much miraculous healing today. Why do we not call people forward and perhaps heal them or slay them in spirit as we might see in a Pentecostal setting? It's because there was a purpose to this You see, the mother-in-law of Peter was not healed for all time. She would get sick again. She would get fevers again. She would die. All of those who who Jesus had saved would die. They would get sick. They would maybe fall under a similar illness that Jesus had healed. There was a total restoration coming here. It was a glimpse and taste of what is Jesus performed these miracles in order to confirm his identity as Christ himself. That's why he did that when I was in middle school, I skateboarded quite often every day, and I'd often roll my ankles. These ankles are basically just circles at this point. They just want to be rolled. And I, I was always in so much pain, and I just continued skateboarding. But I often prayed for miraculous healing. I often prayed, Lord, if you just heal my ankles this time, I won't roll them ever again. I remember praying for a tournament that I was in for my, my knee. I had a blown out knee, and I said, Lord, if you heal my knee, I will bring you honor and glory by winning this tournament. So presumptuous. Middle schoolers wisdom. Because I saw Jesus heal, so he must heal me. He did not heal my knee. 
oftentimes is not. And it's not because he hates us. It's because our temporal healing of this earth isn't a healing. There's a greater healing. And it's great to pray for healing. There's nothing perhaps wrong with me pray for healing on Sunday night some problem. But we pray for healing with the expectation to be healed. It may not be today, but it's the promise of future restoration that we have in the You may not be restored. You may wonder how long will it How long do I have to deal with this project? How long do I have to deal with this need? How long do I have to deal with this ailment? Will this ever be fixed? Those questions that we all have also pray for you. But also pray with the expectation that Jesus did not heal just to heal. To heal, to show us salvation that comes before the That those who cannot walk today will one day walk. It may not be in this time, but it will come at one point in the Continue to pray. Pray with a great hope that if not today, you will truly see the sun. Expel all demons. He will cleanse the universe of all sin. He will calm the chaos of the storm. He will bring true and total restoration. It may not be today. He promises it to be. That is the great taste of his world. And you can take that to the bank. Jesus' word comes with positive. We see it as he preaches to us. We see it as he conquers all wickedness in the demonic realm and as he promises restoration today. But today, even as we are ailing, we have a table prepared for us. A table that was prepared for us because the Lord knows that we would ail. He knows that we'd be beaten and battered by the world. And so he prepared it for us. And today, when we are perhaps at our lowest, that we might be risen up, drawn up to have new place. Calvin often said in his sermons as he would prepare the people for the Lord's Supper, he would say, at this point, then, the Spirit draws us up to the heavenly place for this Sunday to taste what we have yet to receive, to taste that restoration. And so today, as we prepare for the table, and we taste that true restoration that we have in the day of this place. We can pray with you. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you, O Lord, that we could be healed. And if not today, we need to be healed with Lord Jesus Christ in eternity. We pray, O Lord, that as we see your grace and mercy on our lives in our day to day, as we grow in power and sin, as we destroy the wounds of Satan and his demons. We pray, Lord, that you be gracious to us. Remind us of our secure hope in Christ with his almighty, authoritative word. May we, O oh Lord, dwell upon that as we come before the King of Kings. Amen. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.